1 Peter 3, we begin with verse 14. This is the word of God, let us hear it, where Peter writes, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 18. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the last verse from the portion we just read. Look with me, if you would, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Among the many heresies that have plagued the history of the church, can be found a theory of the atonement that's sometimes referred to as the moral influence theory of the atonement. This notion of the atonement uh, has some history behind it. It actually originated before the days of the Reformation. And according to this theory of the atonement, the cross, the, the cross of Jesus Christ serves no purpose beyond manifesting, setting an example, if you will, of God's love as Christ suffered in and with his sinful creatures. As is sometimes the case with wrong theories of the atonement, the problem is not that what the theory proposes is false, because there certainly is an example to be found in Christ on the cross. The only problem in this case is its limitation, or in other words, the theory doesn't go nearly far enough in recognizing all that was accomplished by Christ's atoning death. There's much more to it than simply an example uh, to sway us and to have moral influence over us. Now, I raise the matter today because, in fact, Peter, in the words of our text, is setting forth the example of Christ and his sufferings as an example to be followed by believers. Look at the words a little earlier than our text in verse 14, where Peter says, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Peter is addressing his first epistle to those who were troubled, to those who were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. His epistle is addressed to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
He makes mention in his opening salutation of the trial of their faith and the fact that they were in heaviness through manifold temptations. So he's writing to a people that were in deep distress, those who were knowing persecution, those who were facing severe trials. It is better, he writes now in chapter 3, verse 17, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And a challenge arises from Peter's words that his readers make sure that when they're suffering, make sure you're suffering for righteousness' sake, for the righteous things you do, and not from evil-doing. And in order to encourage them in their suffering for righteousness' sake, he reminds them of the sufferings of Christ. So we read the words of our text and note the word also, for Christ also, in addition to you people suffering, in addition to you who are being severely persecuted, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And I say, take note of the word also. In addition to the way you strangers from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia are suffering for your faith in Christ. Christ also himself hath once suffered for sins. So there's something to be said here for the example of Christ having um, moral influence over us. Like I said, the problem with such a theory of the atonement is not that what it sets forth is necessarily false, but only that what it sets forth isn't nearly enough. In fact, Peter very specifically sets forth the example of Christ in his sufferings in the previous chapter of his first epistle. If you would care to look in chapter 2 of 1 Peter and verse 21, he writes, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He did this for an example. Well, you can take a very practical lesson from the example of Christ there, can't you? When you are suffering for righteousness' sake, when you are feeling uh, the heat of the battle, so to speak, and the reproach that the world heaps upon you, and maybe it's coming upon you in a very particular way, well, don't worry about uh, matching those uh, who are criticizing you, but instead... Commit yourself to him that judgeth righteously, and think upon your Savior. And in the next chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 4 and verse 1, Peter writes, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. I know I've pointed out on other occasions around the Lord's table how Christ sets an outstanding example for us in the matter of prayer. 
during the time of his suffering on Calvary's cross. With all the forces of heaven and earth and hell set against him, he continued to make intercession for his people, and he continued as our high priest to present himself to God. What an outstanding example of a man who would not be hindered from praying for those he represented. Oh, think upon Christ and then consider uh, what it takes to stop you at times from praying. And remember the example of Christ who continued to pray under circumstances that would have crushed a mere mortal. And when you consider his example, then pray on and pray through until you gain assurance that God has heard you and that God will answer you. So the atonement of Christ is a tremendous example for the people of God to follow. And we do well to be influenced by that example. What I want to call your attention to this morning, however, is just how much more is involved in the sufferings of Christ uh, than an example for suffering that he sets for us. Our text, you could say, is packed with much more than only the example of Christ. So let's look at this text this morning in preparation for our observance of the Lord's table. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Think with me, first of all, on the cause for Christ's sufferings, the cause for his sufferings, and this is made very clear by the words of our text, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. What is the cause of his suffering then? He suffered for sins. There's the cause. That little word for in our text means on account of or because of. He suffered on account of or because of sins. And it was and is because the human race is a fallen race that Christ suffered. I know such a notion runs completely contrary to, to the way that men think today. Our culture tells us that we're progressing. We're advancing in our technology and we're advancing in our ethics. We're so advanced that sin is called virtue and virtue is called sin. We've come that far. So the world thinks. We're so advanced that we designate an entire month to uh, proclaim pride in our sin. And those that announce to the world how morally perverse they are are viewed today as courageous heroes. That's how far we've come. In my own experience, it was the Bible's diagnosis of the condition of the world that really convinced me that the Bible truly is the Word of God. When you take into account all the wars and all the crimes, the murders, the stealing, the infidelity, the abuse between spouses, the strife and hatred and suspicions and insecurity, and how safe it is to be out at night in certain places, and the fact that you have to lock your doors at night and keep a close eye on your young children, 
How do you account for all this? The Bible nails it. Nails it with a single three-letter word. It's all on account of sin. That's sin. I never will forget when that was so impressed on my heart. This really does explain the state of the world today, doesn't it? It's sin. This is why Paul would write very vividly in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. And the way of peace have they not known? There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's in Romans 3, verses 10 to 18. What a vivid description of the depravity of man. And this is why Christ himself would say during the days he was in this world in Matthew 15 and verse 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Oh, Christ pins the problem to the source, doesn't he? It is out of the heart that these things spring. He makes that clear in the Sermon on the Mount as well. He that looks on a woman with lust in his heart is guilty of adultery. And he that is unjustly angry with his brother has committed murder in his heart. You would think that the world would see this, wouldn't you? Because these things go on every day and they go on everywhere. What city in America can you point to that could take exception to the things that we've just considered? But the world is blinded by pride. As individuals, it would seem that we can very clearly see the sins and faults in others. But how often do we fail to see our own sins? (coughs) Well, thank the Lord this morning if you've been able, by the grace of God, to see your own sins. That's evidence of grace in your life. The grace to be honest before God and to be honest with yourself on the matter of sin. I know I perform this miracle on numerous occasions here. Sometimes I perform it when I visit other churches. You remember it, my accusing finger. I can point it anywhere. I'm going right across the sanctuary. I can point it at any one of you. I catch you who's ever in the booth back there too, Toby. <laughs> I pointed at everyone and, uh, and at my, my neighbor, at my boss, at the government. We all point it there quite often, don't we? But here comes the miracle, and this is nothing short of supernatural grace when I can turn the accusing finger on myself. I'm the sinner. I see my own heart. I see my own sins. I see that if you were to fill this world with people just like me, you would have a situation at least as bad as what it is now, if not worse. It takes the grace of God to acknowledge that in yourselves. But thank God this morning, 
for the scriptural answer to the shorter catechism question number 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And the answer, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. And in that covenant of grace, it was determined that Christ must suffer and die in order to bring about this redemption. And so sin was the cause of our Savior's sufferings and death, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Let's not ever forget that. Let's not ever forget, ever forget why he came, why he was born, why he lived, and why he died it was for sins. He died for sins. Peter uh, states that quite uh, explicitly, doesn't he? But then note with me next, secondly, the finality of Christ's sufferings. Our text tells us that Christ also hath once suffered for sins. This is not something that Christ will ever have to repeat. He suffered, he died once. And that little word once, it's rather amazing, isn't it, to take note of the little words you find in Scripture. That little word once conveys to us the blessing of a finished and successful atonement. An atonement that only need be made once. The author of Hebrews makes this a point of emphasis, especially as he contrasts the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ with the continual offerings of all those animal sacrifices that could never take away sins. Let me read for you some of the verses in Hebrews that uh, uh, convey this emphasis. Chapter 7, verse 27, "...who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Chapter 9, verse 7. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The reference there, not specifically to Christ, but to the high priest on that day of atonement. A few verses later, though, in that chapter, verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. What a clear statement of redemption accomplished. He obtained it. He obtained redemption. He didn't make it possible. He didn't uh, make it available in a hypothetical sense. No, he actually obtained it. Same chapter, chapter 9, verse 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28, Hebrews 9. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. You get the uh, 
the truth of it, don't you? This is a one-time offering for sin. And when you understand that and you appreciate that, then you should be utterly abhorred by any notion that would suggest that uh, the offering of Christ is something that needs to be continued, such as what you have in the Roman Catholic Mass. The idea of a one-time and successful and definite atonement is communicated to us in the next-to-last saying of Christ on Calvary's cross. These are words that we glory in and gladly remember around the Lord's table this morning. The words of Christ, it is finished. I'm inclined to think that this announcement was made by Christ with a loud voice. This is something that he shouted, even very close to the point of his death, where shouting for ordinary men would have been impossible at that point in their sufferings. We know Christ said these words right before he uttered his final saying, recorded in Luke 23, verse 46. It says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Compare that to Mark chapter 15, verse 37. We read, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Rather interesting to note from the account in Mark 15, that it was when the centurion who was there beside Christ during this time, when he saw how loudly he cried his final sayings, that led him to conclude, truly this man was the Son of God. The crucified victims did not cry with a loud voice right before they died. They would be so overborne in pain and in suffering and in suffocation, it would be nearly impossible for them to gasp out anything at all. And here we find our Savior shouting the glorious truth. It is finished. And so these words, therefore, should be viewed as words of triumph. Christ conquered death, and he conquered sin, and he satisfied divine justice by dying on Calvary's cross. What a wonderful statement so concisely expressed by Peter then when he says that Christ also hath once suffered for sins. You begin to get an idea then from this text in 1 Peter 3.18 how concise and yet how comprehensive is this verse. And we're not done yet. We move on next to consider the irony of Christ's sufferings. The irony of his sufferings. Notice the words of our text. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. The just for the unjust. I say there's a lot of irony in that statement. In the usual order of things, it's the unjust that are punished and the just that are declared righteous and free. The unjust are punished because they're worthy to be punished. It's the unjust ones that deserve the death sentence. It's the unjust ones that deserve everlasting condemnation. 
And as we've seen already under my first point on the issue of sin, we are the ones that are sinful. We are the ones, therefore, that are unjust. Sin is a violation of justice, you see. And yet, how is it that we are the ones that go free? We are the ones, the unjust ones, that are saved and thus delivered from everlasting condemnation. Christ, on the other hand, was totally just. He was and he is righteous altogether. He's the one who did no sin, who knew no sin, in whom there was no sin. He's the one that was twice commended by his father by a voice from heaven which said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That happened at his baptism and it happened at the transfiguration of the mount. And what that statement from the father indicates to us is that Christ was sinless. He was the just one. He was free from sin. He had never committed sin. Had there been any trace of sin in anything he said or did or thought or his motives, he could not have gained that kind of testimony from his father. That's why I suggest to the people of God that every time you read that statement in the gospel, that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, it ought to move you to shout glory, hallelujah. Because if God is pleased with his son, it means that God can be pleased with you and God can be pleased with me as we are joined to his son. Even the ungodly governor Pontius Pilate would make the announcement, I find no fault in this man. In Luke 23 and verse 4. And so what glorious words are written by the Apostle Paul when he speaks of the double imputation of our sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For he, God, hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, he was made sin for us, or in other words, our sins were imputed to him. The sins of the unjust ones were imputed to the one who was just, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, or in other words, his righteousness is imputed to us. What a glorious exchange, and what irony that such an exchange was even needed. This is how one who is just could die for the unjust. In the course of history, there have been those that have challenged the very notion that one who is just could die for the unjust. It's as if the very notion of an innocent man dying for guilty sinners would be in itself a terrible violation of justice. And you know, in a sense, that's true. In the realm of this world, if you could take, say hypothetically, one of the worst kinds, a, a man who was guilty of some of the worst kinds of heinous crimes who was worthy of the death penalty, maybe he was a serial killer, maybe he was a child abuser, maybe he was that and much, much more in such a way that he goes to court, the case is proven, he's found to be guilty, he's sentenced to death. 
But then someone else comes forward and dies in his place. And the serial killer goes free. Is that really justice? You know, I, I'm a little apprehensive when I hear illustrations of that sort of thing because it's not really a manifestation of justice. In fact, it's injustice, and that's why some people are repulsed at the very notion of the innocent dying for the guilty. Well, in our case, the solution to what is a seeming dilemma is found in the doctrine of our union to Christ because we were given to him, and he is to us uh, the head, uh, our head in the covenant of redemption. There became then a oneness between Christ and his people. He was qualified by becoming man to represent his people by his life and by his death. So thank God today that Christ could and Christ did suffer and die once for sins, the just for the unjust, and that this does indeed satisfy the justice of God by virtue of the, of the identification of Christ with his people. So most, most gladly do we remember the irony of such a glorious death, but then let's also note the aim in his sufferings, the aim in his sufferings. Why did he suffer and die? What was his purpose in doing this, the just for the unjust? And Peter leaves us with no doubt his suffering served a very specific purpose. Note again the words of our text, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. There's the aim, there's the purpose. There's the answer to the question, why? Why he once suffered the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We have no access to God apart from a crucified Savior. We're aliens to God on account of our sin. So Paul writes in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as others. Do you get what Paul is saying there? You were very much a part of the world, a part of the world's culture. You had no access to God. And a few verses later in that same chapter, Ephesians 2, Paul calls on his readers to remember something very specifically. Uh, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 11, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Oh, we were far from God. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. And such was our helpless estate that we were without hope and without God in the world. 
But the purpose of Christ's sufferings and death were to change all that. The purpose behind Christ's atoning death was to bring us near to God. So Paul could go on to write in that same second chapter of Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now therefore, Paul could write Ephesians 2.19, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Those who had no access to God are now members of the household of God. We've been made fellow heirs, he writes, chapter 3 and verse 19. We've been brought into the family of God. Christ's aim in dying on Calvary's cross was to do all this. His aim was to bring us to God. This is why we have communion with God. This is why we can worship with assurance that he'll receive our worship. This is why we can enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into, into his courts with praise. What a glorious inheritance we've gained, therefore, by Christ's sufferings and death. We've been redeemed. We're able to sing the refrain of the hymn that says, Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. My sins are all pardoned. My guilt is all gone. Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. Now, before we partake of these elements, let me mention one more thing that arises out of the text. We've seen that sin was the cause of Christ's sufferings. We've seen the finality and the irony of his sufferings. We've also seen now the aim in his sufferings to bring us to God. Let's consider finally and briefly the manner and the triumph of his sufferings. The manner and the triumph of his sufferings. And this is brought out in the very last statement of our text. Look at it again. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He was put to death in the flesh. It could not be otherwise. God, you see, as God, could not die. God simply doesn't die. He's everlasting. He cannot cease to be. Christ could not die without taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He must become a man if he would die for men. And this is the glory of his name, Emmanuel, God with us. He came in the flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. He was born to die. It was arranged in eternity past that if those given to him were to be saved, then he must become one of them and one with them. And the only way he could die would be to suffer death in the flesh. The author of Hebrews expresses Christ's obligation to become a man 
in the words of Hebrew, Hebrews 2 and verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Underscore that word behooved. I suppose that is a King James word. I don't know that you hear that one very often today. Almost every other modern translation that I checked translates it this way. He had to be made like his brethren. It behooved him, or in other words, he had to be made like his brethren. Now the word in our authorized version, behoove, is a word that means it was his obligation or his duty. He had to be made like his brethren in order to die for his brethren or in order to represent his brethren. That is one of the reasons you know that we do well to remember especially the emblem of the bread. It speaks to us of Christ's humanity. He died in the flesh. He could not die had he not taken to himself flesh. Thank God that he did. And he did take to himself flesh uh, in order that he might die for those he represented. But then note also in closing the triumph of his sufferings. Though he was put to death in the flesh, he was also quickened by the spirit. The word quickened means made alive. He was raised from the dead. The grave couldn't keep him. It could keep you and me because it would have a just claim over us on account of our sins, but it could not keep our Savior. And so his resurrection vindicates his identity. In other words, it proves that he was and is the Son of God, declared so to be with the power of the resurrection. Paul writes in Romans 1, and it also proves that his atoning death was successful, successful in satisfying God's justice, successful in accomplishing redemption, successful in putting away our sins, successful in reconciling us to God and bringing us into the family of God. Oh, I hope you can see just how much is packed into this statement of Peter as it pertains to the sufferings and resurrection of Christ. What a glorious verse for us to have before us to meditate upon as we remember Christ this morning. May the Lord draw near and bless the truth of his word to our hearts as we think upon Christ around his table. Here is a good verse to commit to memory. Maybe this will qualify. It should qualify as a memory verse for us when we take up memorizing verses next week. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Amen. May the Lord stamp his word upon our hearts. Let's pray. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence this morning, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. We marvel at his willingness to take to himself a true body and a reasonable soul in order to die for us. 
We know he could not die as God. God doesn't die. But he could die and he did die when he took flesh to himself. And you did this to redeem us. You did this to save us. You did this to bring us to God. And we bless thee and we thank thee, Lord Jesus, for what thou hast done. May the truth of it reach our hearts and transform our lives. May it have such an impact on us, even this morning, as we remember Christ, that we find ourselves all the more conformed to his image. O Lord, accomplish much in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.